Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Books. Where would we be without books? Where would we be without Ludo's Interbird? It's a rhetorical question, sir. But where would we be without books? From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Alan Felsenthal. Welcome to a Bookworm Retrospective Show, a celebration of 33 years of Bookworm on KCRW with Michael Silverblatt. Michael recorded more than 1,600 Bookworm conversations. He is on hiatus now for health reasons. Michael has been a mentor and dear friend of mine for most of my life. When we first met over two decades ago, I was ashamed to say I was a poet. Based on a poem of mine that our mutual friend, Alan Howard, had shown him, Michael invited me to dinner. I was extremely nervous. What would I say? We ended up talking all night about Kafka, Plato, and Kabbalah. From then on, we went to breakfast each weekend, and Michael basically taught me how and what to read. He has been the most significant influence on my writing. He encouraged me to go back to school, to study poetry, and to start a press with my friend Ben Estes. Ben and I have been running a small press called The Song Cave since 2009. And my first book of poems was published in 2017, dedicated to Michael. Over the last few years, Michael and I compiled a book of his conversations featuring 12 of his beloved writers that was just published by The Song Cave. The focus of today's show is poetry. Michael has said that he had trouble finding his way into poetry until he had several formative experiences, including one he described in 2019 during a Whitman tribute with guests Iman Grennan, Major Jackson, and Patty Ann Rogers. This is an excerpt from that show featuring Patty Ann Rogers reading Walt Whitman's A Clear Midnight. When I got to college, I was not a practiced reader of poetry, and Whitman turned me on. He, he, was, he was the man uh, for me. I couldn't believe what I was finding there. I found that my eyes couldn't go all the way across the page. The lines are so long, so I started to read out loud. And when I started to read out loud, I started to like it and walked out in the hallway and walked across the campus sort of Pied Piper style, um, reading mostly not to students but to the runaway kids who used to crowd around the round floors of the dormitories and then eventually we all sat on an elevator going up and down mm-hmm. reading all of Song of Myself <laughs> till I was finished and I swear to you by the end of it I'd stopped wanting to be a business math major which is what my parents wanted and I knew I was an English major that was what Whitman did to me talking about his influence outside of America um, you know I don't know if you knew or probably did that Van Gogh's Starry Night was uh, influenced by Whitman oh wow I and didn't know that there are letters to both his uh, sister and his brother right, and yeah. he was reading Whitman at the same time that he right. painted Starry Night wow. and mm. even said it, it, this is my only painting with a poetic interpretation, a clear midnight. This is thy hour, O soul, thy free flight into the wordless, away from books, away from art, the day erased, the lesson done, thee fully forth emerging, silent, 
gazing, pondering the themes thou lovest best, night, sleep, death, and the stars. (laughs) That was Patty Ann Rogers reading Walt Whitman's A Clear Midnight. In 2007, Michael had the first of several conversations with one of his favorite poets, John Ashbery, upon the publication of his book, A Worldly Country. This conversation began a friendship that lasted until Ashbery's passing in 2017. Today, I'm very honored. It's been a great desire of mine to have John Ashbery as my guest on Bookworm. And, you know, for many years, I've been reading his poems. Since I was a student, um, John Ashbery gave me his book, Three Poems, when it had first come out. And um, I guess I've been reading him constantly ever since. For me, he's a kind of connoisseur of wonderlands. If you bear in mind that wonderland can be chaotic, that what goes on there is often um, an exchange of incomprehensions, that (laughs) the people that one meets are often not very nice to one, that anything can follow, non sequiturs are the rules in Wonderland. And in addition, Wonderland incorporates a good deal of parody, pastiche, extraordinary events that take place at bewildering speeds. And I am happiest, I guess. I remember when I first read the Alice books in the forest where things lose their names. Alice is pictured in the famous illustration by Tennille, um, clutching a fawn, not knowing who she is, which is often, for me, the effect, thrilling and bewildering, of Ashbery's poetry. Um, I, I wanted to begin by asking you if that kind of nonsense and wonderland itself was important to you? Well, uh, uh, yes. I, I <laughs> <laughs> Certainly Alice in Wonderland is one of the first and major books I've ever read. And um, it seems very much a reflection of the world that we live in and has a lot to teach us about it. I guess. Well, I think so, too. Um, <laughs> John Ashbery's new book is A Worldly Country. It's published by Echo. This is John Ashbery reading from his new book. Yeah, this is the title poem, A, A Worldly Country. It's rather unusual for me in that it rhymes, although I used to write rhyming poems when I first started writing poetry because I thought it would be hard to do and uh, discovered that it wasn't, so went on to writing non-rhyming poetry. A worldly country. Not the smoothness, not the insane clocks on the square, the scent of manure in the municipal parterre, not the fabrics, the sullen mockery of Tweety Bird, not the fresh troops that needed freshening up, If it occurred in real time, it was okay. And if it was time in a novel, that was okay, too. From palace and hovel, the great parade flooded avenue and byway, 
and turnip fields became just another highway. Leftover bonbons were thrown to the chickens and geese, who squawked like the very dickens. There was no peace in the bathroom, none in the china closet, or the banks, where no one came to make a deposit. In short, all hell broke loose that wide afternoon. By evening, all was calm again. A crescent moon hung in the sky like a parrot on its perch. Departing guests smiled and called, See you in church. For night, as usual, knew what it was doing, providing sleep to offset the great ungluing that tomorrow again would surely bring. As I gazed at the quiet rubble, one thing puzzled me. What had happened and why? One minute we were up to our necks in rebelliousness, and the next, peace had, had subdued the ranks of hellishness. So often it happens that the time we turn around in soon becomes the shoal our pathetic skiff will run aground in. And just as waves are anchored to the bottom of the sea, we must reach the shallows before God cuts us free. John Ashbery, reading the title poem from his new collection, A Worldly Country. I should do that more often. I think it's, it, there's a real pleasure in rhyming things like highway and byway. <laughs> <laughs> and chickens and dickens. <laughs> well, I remember thinking when, when the, some of the rhyming poems started to appear that they were kind of like dum-dum poems. <laughs> the point was to rhyme dumb. Yes. And, and that, the, um, that the poem gave the impression of an idiot who thought that this is poetry. You know, this is what a <laughs> poem is supposed to sound like. Um, and and I, do I remember correctly? Is it in the Ella Wheeler Wilcox? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah kind of crazy section in which, you know, someone who thinks that poetry is about making majestic statements <laughs> and rhyming them, too, yes. <laughs> both at the same time. That's the Calypso section. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's, it's kind of amazing. What, what is it that, I mean, it's a kind of making fun, yes, of people who think poetry is this. Well, I, I more than that, I think it's a kind of uh, uh, redeeming uh, sort of thematic or uh, uh, disesteemed dis material, and having it and saying this is poetry too, and uh, even our, you know, the the little rhymes that occur to us when we're. Um, taking, shaving, or <laughs> eating breakfast, uh, have a right to exist just as much as, as uh, high-flown. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that inclusion of disesteemed material, this own material, um, is that part of the democracy of poems? I Well, I think it should be, and um, I... Uh, I've always felt very uh, uh, warmly towards cliches and use them a lot. Uh, and the, the reason being that uh, they're the way we, we talk when we talk to each other and are trying very hard to make ourselves understood and to uh, make people like us or uh, 
get something that we want, and that we resort to these uh, sort of age-old, tired expressions, which to me have a kind of holiness about them just because they've been used so much by people to communicate and touch each other. And um, I, I'm sort of, yeah, for a democracy of of style, stylistic elements such as self-conscious, poetical language, uh, crude slang, um, journalistic prose, uh, textbook kind of uh, boring exposition. Uh, I, I see all these as kind of rolling around with each other and being a kind of medium of of, uh, of communication that is uh, what poetry tries to uh, function as. At first, I didn't know what to do with your poems at all, except to reread them. They were so mystifying to me, and I reread them for years without understanding that I already understood them or that whatever understanding by and large was required had been internalized, you know, that that I now took pleasure in these sentences and lines of poetry, the like of which I couldn't find anywhere else. And then I grew to love and look forward to them as a favorite thing. I guess, you know, I've grown up with you and been there while poetry, to the extent that it's changed, has changed because of these things. This is turning into a very long sentence tribute um, to seemingly know of someone who never took orders, who did it, what did they say, I did it my way, <laughs> but, but, but who, who, who never had the felt obligation to surrender to anything but one's own strange impulse. Um, it seems marvelous and exemplary to me. Thank you. That's that's wonderful. I've I've uh, I always hoped that that what I was writing would would connect with a reader, but it took a long time for for that to happen. That was John Ashbery. We'll be back after this short break. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. This is a bookworm retrospective. I'm Alan Felsenthal. 
In 2008, Michael and I went to the Penn World Voices Conference, where he spoke with Mexican poet Coral Bracho and her translator, Forrest Gander. This was not only the first time Coral Bracho's work was translated into English, but also the first interview she ever agreed to give. I'm in New York City for the Penn World Voices Festival. Penn brings from all over the world writers who I would not otherwise have a chance to talk to. My guest today, Coral Bracho, is a Mexican poet whose first book is published in America by New Directions. It's called Firefly Under the Tongue, and it, its translator is here also. Forrest Gander is also a wonderful American poet, and he's done a magnificent translation of this very beautiful book, Firefly Under the Tongue, by Coral Bracho. Um, it is a selection from over eight collections over the years. She has published eight books of poetry. How did you find the work of Coral Bracho and decide to translate it for us? In a kind of ridiculous way. I was living in a town with a very sad name called Dolores Hidalgo in central Mexico, Sad Hidalgo, where the revolution started. And in the early 80s, it was a very sleepy little town. And there was no bookstore, but there was a puesto, a local place that sold uh, drinks and magazines. And one of the magazines that was popular in Mexico then was the Super Macho Comics. And next to the Super Macho Comics was a book of Coral Brachos. And I was so delighted that they were selling poetry this way that I bought the book, and that was my introduction to Coral Bracho's work. And what was it that attracted you to it? I'd never read anything like it, either in English or in... Uh, I was collecting a lot of books then of uh, contemporary Mexican writers, and it sounded distinctly different and very exciting to me. I'm so delighted that you're here. This is Corral's first interview anywhere, let alone in America, and it's a great honor that you've agreed to participate. No, it's a great honor for me to be with you and, of course, with Forrest, who I'm very grateful to. When I started writing, and still in many of the poems, mo most of them, I, I try to, to go into... Um, emotions or sensations. My aim is to go to the very essential element of an emotion or a sensation and its plastic display in the mind. The title poem is the title of the collection, Firefly Under the Tongue. This is Forrest Gander reading his translation. Firefly Under the Tongue. I love you from the sharp tang of fermentation, in the blissful pulp, newborn insects blue, in the unsullied juice glazed and ductile, a cry that distills the light, through the fissures in fruit trees, under mossy water clinging to the shadows, the papillae, the grottos, 
in herbaceous dyes instilled, from flustered touch, luster oozing, bittersweet, from voracious pleasures, from play splayed in pulses, hinge, wrapped in the night's aura, in violacious clamor refined, the child, with the softened root of his tongue, expectant, touches from that smooth, unsustainable lubricity, a sensitive lily folding into the rocks. If it senses the stigma, the ardor of light, the substance, the heiress, fine and vibrant, in the ecstatic petal, distended, Jewel pulsing half open, udder, the acid juice bland, ice, the salt marsh, the delicate sap, Kabbalah, the nectar of the firefly. Wow, Forrest Gander reading his translation of the title poem in the selection of Carl Bracho's work, Firefly Under the Tongue. I'm going to ask Carl to read that in Spanish. Una luciérnaga bajo la lengua. Te amo desde el sabor inquieto de la fermentación. En la pulpa festiva, insectos frescos, azules, en el zumo reciente, vidriado y dúctil, grito que destila la luz por las grietas frutales, bajo el agua musgosa que se adhiere a las sombras, las papilas, las grutas, en las tintas herbáceas instilantes, desde el tacto azorado, brillo que resuma agridulce de los goces feraces, de los juegos hendidos por la palpitación, cosne, envuelto por el aura nocturna, por los ruidos violáceos acendrados, el niño, con la base mullida de su lengua expectante, toca desde esa terza insostenible lubricidad, lirio sensitivo que se pliega a las rocas, si presiente el estigma, el ardor de la luz, la sustancia, la arista vibrante y fina, en su pétalo absorto, distendido, joya que palpita entreabierta, ubres, el ácido sumo blando, hielo, el marisma, la savia tierna, cábala, el néctar de la luciérnaga. Mm. I'll tell you, if I didn't read Spanish, I would want to learn it right away. <laughs> because it's, the sounds are so beautifully made. Well, in the last line of this poem, when you join in parentheses, you're describing nature, and you say the delicate sap... And then in parentheses, Kabbalah. <laughs> yeah. In other words, that sap is the mysticism of the tree. Yeah. How amazing. <laughs> <laughs> How amazing you see it. <laughs> but, 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 but that's, you know, to see that in the natural world there's a repetition of the spiritual world. That seems to me to be... I think that's... That you just touched the um, 
uh, the essence, the, the essence, <laughs> the essence that uh, what I try to do in poetry. I, I'm not saying what I'm what I do in poetry, but what I try to get close to in poetry is to find all those connections in in um, in life and in the the yeah. natural world and the spiritual world. Because I think they're all connected. I, I think I think they are mm-hmm. too, and that that had a, the poet is the person who returns to us the language in which such a connection be, can be made. Yes, I think I think ideally. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely feel that way. That was Coral Bracho and Forrest Gander. We continue our show with a conversation from 1996 with Lucille Clifton about her book, The Terrible Stories. Today, my guest is Lucille Clifton with a new book from BOA Editions called The Terrible Stories. In Generations, which is your memoir, you talk about coming home from college and announcing to your father that you don't have to finish college because (laughs) you're a poet. And you went there as a drama major, yes. and I wondered about the discovery <clears throat> of poetry. What was it that told you? Well, at the time, you know, I may well have been making an excuse <laughs> as opposed to <laughs> discovering anything. I was writing before I went to Howard, um, but I, it never occurred to me to think that I would be a poet. I wanted to be uh, an actress, And I thought that there was some matter of choice in what you wanted to be. (laughs) Writing poems wasn't about a matter of choice for me. It was something that I had done since I was a little girl. Um, It seemed as natural to me as breathing was. And I think it was coming from college I realized that perhaps this thing that I did and that I, I, I tended to take for granted was important. I read a lot. I still do. I love reading. And both my parents were great readers. And so, so the reading of books mattered in our family. And this, of course, was from parents, neither of whom graduated from elementary school. I've read your poetry now from beginning to end. And everything is here. You know, love, disease, family, parents. These books do become an autobiography. What I've learned is that those things to which I respond and my experiences in the world are human responses and human experiences. And, and when you're writing, you're writing about the, the, the wonder of being human and, um, and seeing how that is, that is transcendent and transformative. And so I think that if, you ha- if you're going to tell or try to tell a human story... You have to write about it all and try to tell it all, not just the interesting parts or the good parts, but, but all of it. It's very human to, to, um, to be angry, to be afraid, to uh, be cruel even sometimes, and, but you fight against it. Lucille Clifton seems to know from the very beginning that she writes a certain kind of poem. Throughout, the poems are no more than a page or two. If they are, they're in page-long sections. There's never an attempt to do a villanelle or do an ode, you <laughs> well, know? Well, let me say this. <laughs> when I started writing, I wrote sonnets. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. And they were, they were quite awful. It's very interesting that we think we have to train people to their own voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, why do I have to be trained to sound like myself? 
I ought to have a fair idea about what that is. Mm-hmm. But then I can remember uh, the first poem that, that was written that seemed to me to be said, to not, not only say what I wanted to say, but to say it my way, was a little poem called In the Inner City. But what was fortunate was that no one thought that a person like myself in those days, I'm talking about the, the late 50s, early 60s, nobody thought anybody like myself was going to write poems anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have to, I didn't feel I had to adhere to rules that people had set up for people who do this because they weren't talking about me anyway, you know. <laughs> Would you like to read that one? Sure. Just so that we, this is really the first poem really, of the first book. Yes, and it was the first poem in which I, I think I sounded like me. Uh, the circumstance was the po- of the poem was looking at, at the Olympics, I think it was, and I think they were in Mexico City at that time. And uh, somebody was saying Mexico, and the uh, announcer was saying Mexico, and he acted as if they were wrong mm. about their place. Mm. So, in the inner city, or like we call it, home, we think a lot about uptown and the silent nights and the houses straight as dead men, and the pastel lights, and we hang on to our no place, happy to be alive and in the inner city, or, like we call it, home. Now, there was no sonnet way I could do that. That's Lucille Clifton reading the first poem from her very first book, and in a society that doesn't let you get old... Mm -hmm. You've gotten publicly grown up <laughs> as a poet. Yes, it's an amazing I've like thing. grown up. But I but I at a certain point I started thinking about now I want to write poems that are a, grand, a grown woman's poems. I'm a grown woman over the accepted age, over the accepted weight, over the accepted color, you know. And I want to write her poems, because that's who I am. <laughs> this is Song at Midnight by my guest Lucille Clifton from The Book of Light. This has an epigraph from a poem by Sonia Sanchez, Do Not Send Me Out Among Strangers. Brothers, this big woman carries much sweetness in the folds of her flesh. Her hair is white with wonderful. She is rounder than the moon and far more faithful. Brothers, who will hold her? Who will find her beautiful if you do not? And the next one, too. Well, the next one is it's a, a different poem, mm-hmm. but, but this is sort of a, a signature in a way. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. Lucille Clifton, reading from the Book of Light. Now... When you say that you found, for the first time, what it was to sound like yourself, what does that mean? I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it has to do, first of all, with, 
with the written language as opposed to the oral language. I purposely wish to sound, which has to do, of course, with ears as well as eyes, like myself, like speaking. Um, I wanted to write in the casual tongue as if I were talking to a friend. I wanted to use words that could be understood by my mother and my aunts. Uh, but I wanted to use them clearly and precisely. Um, so I really, people on the one hand say that I use such simple language, but I really do think long and hard about the words because the, every word has to stand for so much more than its definition. I really think about uh, the the definition, the history, the the music, or the possibility, the probability of, of words. Um, and I didn't want to write the poetry of Europe. Why would I? You know, I wanted to write American poetry said in an American tongue. That was Lucille Clifton. In today's show, Michael also spoke with Patty Ann Rogers, John Ashbery, Forrest Gander, and Corral Bracho. I'm Alan Felsenthal. As Michael once put it, we've been eavesdropping on conversations between intimates. Bookworm offers a fondness for being compelled by feeling, for perceiving by ear the sensibilities that an accomplished reader and writer are capable of provoking. Is there another show where you can hear Kenward Elmsley singing one week and W.G. Sebald speaking about warfare and its damage to people's souls the next? I will always be grateful to Michael for showing me how to take myself seriously and for reminding all the bookworms out there that there is a place for us. This show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineer was P.J. Shahamet. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen.